This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Hello. Hello. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, you got a haircut. Several yep. of them. Ha! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Was there any uh, rocketry that happened that you'd like to discuss? Oh, yes. Rocketry. I don't know if you heard. There was a rocket that launched. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah, it was like a big topic of discussion both in my Twitter feed and in Slack. I didn't really pay much attention to it, but I have since watched the video that you sent me. Yeah. Although I will say, to be honest, watch the video means like, for the first couple of minutes, I saw a thing on a platform, and then I scrubbed through the video, and it was still on the platform. And I scrubbed through the video some more, and it was still on the platform. But well, then I mean, around it has the little, it has the little timer that <laughs> oh. tells you how long <laughs> it's on the platform for. I did not notice that. Then I scrolled like thirty minutes, and I was like, "Oh, there it goes. It's flying." It was almost impossible to miss the the two things were the picture of the Starman, I believe is what they're calling him. Yeah, Starman. The picture of Starman in the car with Earth in the background was basically impossible to miss yesterday as was the animated gif or animated gif if you are like that of the rockets landing synchronized kind of sort of yeah so for those who have no clue what we're talking about <laughs> the rocket in question is called the falcon heavy and they originally announced it back in like 2013 or something maybe even longer ago than that the idea has been around for a very long time the idea is basically so you've got the delta four and you've got the Delta IV Heavy. The Delta IV Heavy is basically just two more Delta IVs strapped to a center extended Delta IV. And so this is the same thing, but applied to the Falcon 9. You just have your Falcon 9 in the center, and then you strap two more Falcon 9s on the side of it, and that increases its payload capacity, both because it has more thrust-to-weight ratio and then has more Delta V because of the, the way that they do fuel cross-feeding. And the boosters, after they separate, they turn around and go back to the Cape and land in sync, which is really cool. And then the center core, by the time it shuts down, is going far, far, far too fast to be able to turn around. So it theoretically lands on the barge out in the ocean. This this one uh, failed. It ran out of, um, it sounds like it ran out of TTEB, actually, which is really interesting. TTEB's the ignition, I don't know what the term is, reactant. Okay. It's hypergolic with, I think, I don't remember if it's hypergolic with kerosene or liquid oxygen. But basically, they need this in order to start up the engine. Liquid oxygen and kerosene are not hypergolic fuels. They do not just ignite on contact with each other. So there needs to be a, a third chemical used to, to start it. And so basically two of the engines failed to relight when the center core was landing. And so it couldn't land. Hit the ocean at 300 meters per second, which is just barely under the speed of sound. I want to see that video. How have I not seen an animated GIF of that yet? <laughs> I mean, they have, we don't have the footage of it. Oh, I only have the successful footage. They, well, no, they said if the camera wasn't destroyed, they'll release the footage, but they have to go out into the middle of the ocean to get the barge hmm. to get the footage or wait for the barge to come back, I guess. Sometimes I forget that we don't just have like wireless cameras all over the world ready to watch these things. <laughs> no, but it's a it's a big deal, both for fans of SpaceX and fans of space, because, you know, it turns out that just strapping two rockets onto another rocket doesn't quite work without additional modifications. Contrary to what Kerbal Space Program might might have you believe, the center the center core has takes so much more stress, and they had to completely redesign the center core. 
The side cores apparently are only minimal modification. Actually, both side cores are reused Falcon 9s. They've, they, they had both flown before. They just, you know, took off the inner stage for the second stage and put a nose cone on instead. But then this is also now the most powerful rocket in the world. That we know of. <laughs> it's pretty hard to have a secret rocket. <laughs> I will say, so we talked about this at lunch today as a, as a lunchtime conversation. I was a little, I don't know, skeptical is not the right word, but just a little like poo-pooing the whole idea because I was like, we just allowed Elon like a massive promotion for Tesla to air all over and like we're all spreading this sure. promotion for tesla and so i didn't what? quite understand it's, cool. it's a car in space <laughs> well i don't I, I don't think actually the car in space is actually that cool i don't like I, I think the picture is cool but the fact that there is a car in space is not cool to me but <laughs> i mean it's cooler than if they've launched a block of concrete which is typically what they use for these right. sort of, uh, test launches that's what i didn't understand i was like why did they launch a car why didn't they launch something useful like some sort of scientific instrumentation or like right. whatever and then it was explained to me that this was a test launch and nobody would want to launch something that was worth a significant amount of money more than a Tesla yeah. would be worth. Yeah, I mean, Elon was was trying to downplay the likelihood of success. The last time he gave any indication as to how likely it was to be successful, he said, I just hope it gets far enough away from the pad that there's no damage to the pad. <laughs> so it was mostly a success. The launch was a success. The return yep. was mostly a success. When are we going to strap on, you know, something like a some sort of payload that will do some good for humanity into this onto this thing and launch, and launch it again? Not for several months. So the thing about this is so this rocket's been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And meanwhile, the Falcon 9 has improved substantially. And the majority of the payloads that they originally were planning to put on the Falcon Heavy are now capable of flying just on a Falcon 9 in expendable mode. And I'm not sure about what the... There's a new ver, final revision, apparently, What's uh, it, called whoa, whoa. the Block 5. What's expendable mode? <laughs> they don't land the rocket. Aww. <laughs> that was the whole point. It is. And now some of those might fly... That would have to be on an expendable Falcon 9 might fly on a reusable Falcon Heavy instead. But right. the number of payloads that need that need that much power behind them is pretty limited. It's mostly government satellites. The Delta IV Heavy doesn't fly more than a few times a year. Mm -hmm. and it sounds like they're expecting this to be a similar launch cadence so flying like maybe three times a year so it's got double the payload capacity of the delta of the delta four heavy which is which was previously the most powerful rocket in, in service and it's about half the payload capacity of a, of a uh, saturn five which one of these is going to take people to space again eventually any of them no they were originally saying well it's unclear whether people are ever going to fly on the falcon heavy People are going to fly on the Falcon 9 because the reason that we want people in space right now is to get them to and from the space station. Mm -hmm. And so the Falcon 9 is going to be the actual term is man rated. I'm wondering if there's a better a better term to use, but uh, it's going to is going to be man rated. And they were saying the Falcon Heavy was going to be and that's built to specifications far above the minimum requirements. But in the um, pre launch press call, they said that they're not planning to man rate it. Which okay. I guess makes sense because they are looking to get BFR running sooner rather than later. And the only reason you would man rate Falcon Heavy is if you wanted to send people to the moon or Mars. But it does mean that that lunar mission that was supposed to fly this year is going to get canceled. Yes. Not surprised. I mean, we, we, I think at the time when we were, we were like, that's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> that was to re refresh people's memory and my own, right? It was like there were some people who supposedly didn't know each other or something and they were going to fly right. past the moon. 
and then come back and uh, yep. that's not going to happen surprise surprise Lunar flyby on a free return trajectory yeah okay cool rockets yeah and and just one other thing that i think some people were confused about because they were intentionally vague on this the car did not go to mars and it is not going to mars it is going to an orbit which w- may theoretically one day come somewhere close to mars Oh. But it is it is orbiting the sun. It is not if they wanted to actually impact, you know, not impact, but if they wanted to do an actual flyby of Mars, the launch timing would have needed to be much, much more precise and not now. I actually don't know when the, the next launch window is. I think it's I think it's at the end of this year. Hmm. But like Mars is not is not aligned to reasonably reach it right now. OK. Oh, well. So there was uh, another lunch conversation, which has really nothing to do with programming, but we have good lunch conversations here. After we talked about this rocket, we talked about going to Mars, right? Because we we had assumed, like you talked about, that we were putting this thing in orbit around Mars, but I guess it's not happening. Anyway, the idea was talked about about like like putting people on Mars and setting up a colony on Mars. Why is that preferable to setting up a colony in some floating barge in space, like Wally style? Resources, <laughs> you know, what minerals? resources? water okay can't we make some out of i mean i saw the martian didn't he make water yeah and you can so there what the hell's the name of the process the sabatier process creates or does that create oxygen i mean yes you can recycle wastewater but ultimately there is always some amount of water that is lost so if you you know grow some potatoes eat the potatoes pee and then try and recycle that you are going to get less water back than you used to make mm. the potatoes yes I guess we'll have to solve that problem. Also, there would be, you'd either have to generate some gravity or there would be, it would be a one-way trip. <laughs> oh, sure. So well, you, You'd also just die. <laughs> well, or I mean, I think that's didn't die, probably true blind. anyway. Um. <laughs> but like, it, you would at least, you would at least go blind. Your oh. eyes, your eyes cannot operate in, I don't know, I don't even know what the right term to use is, because it's not zero G and it's, and, and when you're in interplanetary space, it is significantly weaker gravity than even what you would experience on the space, on the space station. And that screws with your eyes? Interesting. It screws with the muscles, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, we'll... We, we evolved to uh, exist on a planet with gravity. All right. So we'll have to generate some gravity too. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm, we've to figure out a way to create unlimited amounts of water and to generate gravity. Got it. All right. I guess I could work on those two problems this week instead of, you know, parsing Medicare forms. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, and that's the other reason they're looking at switching the fuels in their new so their new engines called Raptor so I mentioned kerosene and liquid oxygen which is the fuel for the Falcon 9 and it's a pretty traditional rocket fuel it's been used for most rockets for a very long time so they're looking at putting out the first methalox engine so it uses liquid methane and liquid oxygen the reason for that would be availability yeah methane is available on Mars alright cool we need, we need a flex fuel rocket you know, just whatever fuel you got, just load it in there. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think it quite works like that. <laughs> I actually am very interested. So you'll notice that I said liquid methane and liquid oxygen, not methane and oxygen. And the fact that liquid is in the name is very important because it means that liquid is not its natural state and it will boil off over time. So this is uh, why typically you use for anything that goes beyond Earth orbit, we've used hypergolic storable propellants. Hypergolic's not really relevant, but just storable propellants happen to almost always be hypergolic. Of course. Basically, and basically, a storable <laughs> propellant is something that, when stored in a pressurized tank, in a va- or maybe not even a pressurized tank, but in a tank in a vacuum, the propellants remain stable for long periods of time, as opposed to... so. But, so, methalox is not stable. 
And as far as we know, that is the pellant they're planning on using on the spacecraft itself that has to propulsively land on Mars. So I'm very interested in how they are. I mean, if it's just do they just have such good insulation that three months of boil off doesn't matter? Hmm. I'm very curious. Okay. Can they have it be in one form and then transform it into liquid whatever they need? Not, <laughs> no. So one, So you know how they make it out in the media that space is really cold? Yes. It's actually the kind of the opposite. It's very, very difficult to get rid of heat in space. You have to have massive radiators to... Because there's no, there's no convection. So, like, you, you know, you lose heat just to the air. Mm-hmm. There's no air to take heat off of a surface. The only way you can do it is to radiate it. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Okay. So even just keeping, you know, the cabin at a comfortable temperature for humans is difficult, much less getting uh, the fuel tanks down to negative 100 and whatever degrees it has to get to to liquefy oxygen. Okay. Well, scratch my idea. I guess, you know, <laughs> there's a reason why I'm working on parsing Medicare forms. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think the software engineers responsible for the rockets really uh, care that much about, about the dynamics of heat distribution. Okay. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody there who does, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure they they got a few people working on it. Few of their best people, or maybe like their mediocre people. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's our rocket talk, I think. So while that was happening, I was too busy to watch it because I was doing the very important work of upgrading my application to Rails 5.2.0 RC1, which was. A very exciting experience. I think we talked on the last episode about, or was it the last episode or the episode before maybe, about some of the stuff that's coming in 5.2? Yeah, we talked about it in the last episode. I decided to take that upgrade on this week because it's, it is, I think last, I think maybe right after we finished recording that episode that we talked about 5.2, the release candidate came out. Mm-hmm. And we had this application, which is a Greenfield application that was built originally on like 5.1, I think maybe 5.0 right before 5.1 came out, got upgraded to 5.1. And now they have reason for like a whole bunch of file storage. And I was like, I'm not doing this in refile or paperclip or carrier wave or something. And I wanted to use active storage. I was a little, I was actually a little surprised that it's not a gem that I can just use with 5.1, but it's not. So I upgraded right. to 5.2 release candidate one. And I looked at the first thing I did was like, look at the upgrade guide on edge guides. And it was like, I think the one thing it said to do was like put boot snap in your gem file because you won't get this because you're not generating a new font, new thing. And I was like, Ah, this will be easy. And then all of my tests failed. (laughs) So I'm still not sure if just that query is relying on something it shouldn't be or if it's a bug. Yeah, so like I sent you the query. The reason why all of my tests failed is because it turns out a lot of my tests run this query. And it really was just, it's one central query that has like two relations. It has multiple relations, but two relations were particularly problematic. But the problem was basically that previous to i guess in rails 5.1 we would run these this complicated series of relations and then chain these complicated series of relations and would get a query out that had no table aliasing at all and then in 5.2 it decided to alias some of the tables so we would have we had like relation dot joins members and then where members colon and then did some where on there and we ended up having to change that where members colon to where and then whatever the alias that Rails was giving this join. Yeah, and see, that's weird to me because if you're using the hash form, it should always be aware of whatever alias has occurred. Right. And so that's like what I did was like I felt OK about it because I made the change and the test passed. And if this ever gets fixed, the test should fail again. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm not thrilled with this change, but I'm not going to continue spending a whole bunch of time. So one of the things I'd like to do when I get some time is to try and boil down that query object to something a little more 
less domain specific and, and try and get to like a minimal reproduction case and say like, is this a bug or not? Because the query object also does a lot of things where it's like, it adds some like raw SQL type things in there. And it's like, okay, it's conceivable that it's just kind of lost sight of what's going on here. <laughs> but the fact that it's adding an alias, it's not like, I would kind of expect that if it went the other way, if like there was an alias and now there isn't an alias, it's like, oh, it, it lost track of some of the things I'm doing with raw SQL by strings. But like the fact that it felt like it needed to alias this table. I mean, I think we just always alias. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I'm, I'm actually looking for the commit that broke. I was looking through the change log to see, because I feel like I remember making that change, but I don't even know <laughs> how I would find that right now. I did look through the change log to see, like, is there anything in here about aliasing? And there wasn't, I don't think I saw anything about that. That like, And there was one commit. The I association think that I was, doesn't have a scope, does it? I don't think so. I doubt it. I haven't looked that closely at it. But I don't think, I, I didn't think, like I said, tests failed because of it. And, it. and originally I was like, oh, there's so many tests that fail. But it turned out it was just like at two spots in this one query object that I had to change. And I was like, mm, okay, I'll live with it. Yeah, but that should just work. I mean, like, there's literally even in this code that I'm looking at, there's a test in Rails where it does exactly what you were doing. It does joins this table dot where this table colon right. stuff. I mean, that's that's how you do that. But my question is, what I want to boil it down to is a use case where it does that on top of a relation that already has a subselect that joins that same table. But it does, we don't have any way to know that. You were joining to it with a SQL string before, weren't you? Yep. Yep. So we would have no way of knowing. I would think, yeah. But <laughs> there was some... So like, I think that that's, like a, that's a potential bug that I, yeah. I would like to get more information on, particularly while it's still in release candidate phase. But the other thing that I think people are... Oh, I mean, it's not... It's not this is not going to get declared a release blocker. Okay, that's true. It's If, if I'd caught it in beta, then maybe we could get <laughs> Anyway. Uh, but yeah, there's zero chance of this getting fixed before the final release. Okay, so then I'm not worried about it. The other thing that I saw that is not a bug, but it, I think that people... I was surprised to not see any... I don't know if it's something like this belongs in the upgrade guide or not, but basically, like, this application does a decent amount of stuff with Rossi. Like, there's places where we do, like, order by random for like debugging purposes or we oh, do yeah and now you have to do arel.sql and now we have to wrap it in arel.sql so basically it appears as though many query methods maybe not all i guess all where if you pass them a string and the string contains things other than known column names or like known like asc for ascending desc for descending things like that it's going to give you a deprecation warning that says like this is going to be unsupported in rails 6 so you'll have to wrap all those things in arel.sql, which immediately, like there's enough of that in this code base that it immediately made me want to do, to define string.sql safe <laughs> because there's string HTML safe, or actually I guess it's object HTML safe. You're also never supposed to use HTML safe. It's documented. It's documented as don't use this. No, come on. Let me look. Yeah. You're supposed to use raw in the view, right? Is that what you're yep. saying? HTML safe. No doesn't say that. It says, oh, HTML it's, oh, sorry, it's recommended that you sanitize instead. It'll be, yeah, right. Again, sure. the documentation though says, I mean, it doesn't say don't use this, but it says you should probably be using this other thing instead. Right, but wouldn't that be the same as SQL safe? Like it's recommended that you that you sanitize this string instead of just marking it as safe. And, and I guess the issue is that like, this change makes, the change that caused me to have to wrap all these things in ARL.SQL makes sense, right? Because it's like, like it just knows it got a string. It doesn't know that you haven't interpolated user input into it. Right. So wrapping it in arel.sql is you saying like, no, no, no. If I have interpolated user input into here, I meant to do it and it's on me. Or to say like, no, there's, I'm just calling like upper first name here. 
I mean, I'm pretty sure it's e it even allows you to pass column names as a string. I'm pretty sure it's if we ever get a string. This column name should be a, a hash or a symbol. So let me see here. Let me look at the change. Because the, the, that defeats the purpose if we don't give this warning when you give us a column name as a string. We don't know if, if the column name is coming from you just happened to write a string instead of a symbol or if you did params order. True. Let me pull up this pull request because I can look at the areas of the code that yeah. I changed. I mean, the pull request was open for so long. Well, I meant my pull request where I upgraded oh. to 5.2 so I could see what I had to change and what I didn't have to change because there were places where I would like, I had to change one line in the like multi-line statement that chained a bunch of things and I was surprised that I didn't have to change the other one. So let me check for arel.sql. Oh, maybe. Yeah, we don't we don't allow strings anywhere anywhere even in the change log it explicitly says like this is to save you from yourself in places where you're doing article.order params my order under the mistaken belief that only column names will be accepted okay i don't know if anybody actually has that belief uh <laughs> oh no that's not okay that's not true it does say common and judge safe string values such as simple column references are unaffected so that yeah i was gonna say like i'm looking at a change right here where like i had this visit.joins thing where thing.endat is null where, and thing.endat is null. I don't know why that's not just the... I should have updated that to the symbol syntax. But anyway, it's oh. a string and it's totally fine with that. Like that's Yeah, no, that's, I, see, I see what they're going for. So they're going for making article.order params my order safe. They're looking to make it so it actually does only accept right. column names. I gotcha. And so in that same relation... The only thing I had to update was the last part of it, which was pluck, and it passed. So the, the, the argument to pluck was a string that said distinct, you know, foo.patientID. Mm -hmm. So for whatever reason, if I had said pluck and gave it the string thing.patientID, it would have been fine. But the fact that I prefixed it with distinct. Or I mean, why don't you just do dot distinct dot pluck patient ID? I don't know. I Sorry, when I say I prefixed it with distinct <laughs> sure i mean gotcha. it was prefixed with the string distinct as i'm looking at this query there's lots there's two two things i would have changed about it, is that is null as i would have written it as you know using the regular hash syntax and then this pluck i would have done differently but just wrapping that part in arel.sql so be prepared when you do an upgrade if you have lots of little custom sql strings in places to wrap lots of things in arel.sql but overall i think that was fine i think it was a fine yeah. Well, and this is just a deprecation warning, right? Not not an error, so. <laughs> yes, but like I said, as I think our frequent listeners are familiar, I do not allow any deprecation warnings, so. Uh, and this was a particularly noisy one because, like I indicated when I got lots of failures for this one query object, there are a few queries that are central to this application that get run a lot, and they generate a lot of noise when there's deprecations in them. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that, that broke for you, I mean, I'm almost certain it's a bug. Cool. Well, when it gets fixed, the test will fail again and we'll change it back. And I even put in the in the commit, I was like, you know, I don't really like this fix. But what I do like about it is that tests fail. So I, this change was needed to make the test pass. And if there's a fix for this, if this is a bug and it gets fixed in Rails, they'll fail again. And if you get blame this, you'll see why it's like, you know. <laughs> I actually don't know that that's true. I'm like, I think because we fall back to with the hash form of where we fall back to just assuming that that table exists. Right. But then you would get an invalid query. No, because I mean the the query will be unchanged. Like the fix, the fixes that you were do, you were referencing, you know, the actual real name. I was no, I was the fixes I referenced. What Rails like in the where part? So joins I left alone, but in the where part, I changed the symbol from the actual table name to what ra what it appeared Rails had been aliasing right. the table at. So what, what I'm saying is like that's not going to break because that code would have worked on. Well, the table wasn't getting aliased on five one. It sounds like, or maybe it, it was, and it just no, it wasn't. Okay, but, well, if the table was aliased in 5.1,
like if you had manually aliased it, as in you did, you know, you passed a, a string to join. Mm-hmm. And so we don't parse your SQL ever, right. except for, you know, <laughs> in order now we do. Is it only order that will and, pl- and, and select pluck. And, and pluck and pluck? But things not, that things that are known to take columns or lists of columns, but not where. No, not where. Why not? If you, because literally, if you pass a string, where column name, it's already in pl- known that you're passing SQL. Yeah, I guess so. You you would never falsely assume that like this only accepts column names. I would have never falsely assumed that about any of these methods. So I don't know. Like maybe I'm not the right person to object yeah. to. to... <laughs> but anyway, so so where does not know about joins at all? It knows enough to go look up like does this association exist. And that sort of thing. But it's not like where alias table colon. The reason that's working is not because where knows, oh, this alias is being used. Right. Where just assumes that if it can't find an association, it just assumes that table exists. Right. So what I'm saying is it'll still generate that query with the the alias that I'm giving it. Right. And but yeah. that won't be a valid query because the because jo- the joins will go back to not aliasing it. No, no, no. You've got the bug backwards, man. <laughs> <laughs> the alias is fine. Okay. The problem is that when you're passing the hash form to, if you do dot joins members and you, and then you do dot where members with the hash form, mm-hmm. like it, that should use the alias it just created. Right. All right. Well, I guess we'll see when the bug gets fixed. <laughs> sure. I mean, you're right. It might the fix might just be removing the alias, but I'm pretty sure that like I vaguely recall doing a thing where we just always alias tables for joins. So if we do. If, for whatever reason, my tests don't fail, you fix the bug, my tests don't fail, and the query still works, I guess I just don't care. Like, it's a little weird to have this symbol in the query that doesn't exist anywhere in the code base, and you're like, wait, this well, is Well, you're relying on internals. Right. Because you're not allowed to rely on our table aliasing behavior. Sure, right. And so, eventually, either that will break, or it won't matter. Right. It'll only matter to readability, which right now is a little weird, but... Hopefully, you know, if it does break in Rails 7.3. That git blame uh, is still there. And <laughs> hopefully the git blame is easy to lead to that commit, and it's obvious what the solution here is. All right, well, I will see if I can open up an issue, and then I will use tell me when it closes, and then I will get a <laughs> notification. And then when we are long off this client, I will call them up, and I'll say, hey, <laughs> this change I made in this file four years ago, <laughs> you're going to need to change that. Anyway, so yeah, other than that, though, the play was good. Other than that, the the upgrade was easy. That's and, good. Uh, I'm pretty excited about using, like, I, I read through the edge guide to active storage while I was, like, running the test suite, just testing these things. Mm-hmm. In particular, like, this application is not going to use, like, the user-facing part of, like, a user submitting a file to be uploaded and we stream it directly to S3, but just, like, the idea of having the... Um, like the single polymorphic table of attachments actually is going to work out pretty well for this application. And so I'm pretty excited about that. We'll see how it goes. Chris is working on it right now. So we'll see, see how that comes along. I mean, I don't like the decision to have the single table for all files, but like the reason that that was done, right, is that you never need a migration to add an attachment to a model. Oh, yeah, I guess so. But it has always bothered me, like in paperclip land you end up like when you add an attachment to a file you don't just get one column you get three columns or whatever the, sure. the case is and it's and some of those columns can be null and uh, or maybe they can't well they could if they don't have an attachment right i would still much prefer if there was an explicit join table yeah i mean i guess in my use case there will be a join table it'll just also have some addition because like what we're attaching is actually made up of several files so there will be a join table that represents like one object which is several files which is so like there will be this intermediate step 
And I just like foreign key constraints. Foreign key constraints are a thing, yeah. Uh, and you can't have foreign key constraints on, on polymorphic, on polymorphic stuff, yeah. You can You can at least index it, which is fine, right. because this table will likely get large. Yep. I've long kind of considered, and I know this is possible, I just haven't done it, is like code that would create some sort of trigger that enforces basically a foreign key on polymorphic associations. You specifically, well, you could do it in a trigger. Right. You couldn't do it in a constraint. No. Because check constraints very specifically cannot access data from other tables specifically because this constraint shouldn't become invalid. At, at, you know, mm -hmm. update, update rows set ID equals ID should never fail. Okay. So, but your trigger like, yeah, I guess if it runs on update or delete. It would have to know the tricky part. I'm trying to remember like, because I've looked into this before and been like, that would be kind of neat to have that is... We have to know every table that could ever that could ever point at. So you'd have to have some part of the Rails application export a mapping of model name, like whatever it's going to put in the polymorphic type column, to the actual table name. Yeah, but at that point you can just add a foreign key constraint. What do you mean by that? Alter table whatever add con you know constraint whatever the name is foreign key blah references other table primary key mm -hmm. where type equals. Okay. You know, whatever the model name is. Like, if you if you know that, then you can just then you can add that foreign key constraint. Yes, but at I'm, least in Postgres. Right, but you could do it. You could do it very specifically for your use case. Where I was thinking more like generally, like any polymorphic association would be handled, would be checked for you. I mean, although you might not yeah. want that, and you'd need a way to opt out of that. But <laughs> well, you also need the so the trigger wouldn't run on the uh, well it would run on the on the uh, attachments table, but it also needs to run on. The model table because oh, right. you know the, the whole point is that you want it to not let you delete a model if there's still attachments pointing at it true although in this case that doesn't matter because you're never going attachment to parent you're always going parent to child i don't know i guess the other reason i don't like it is because i you know hey n plus one queries yay <laughs> yeah i'm always a little unclear on when you can and can't preload the association there's always something about that anyway ultimately i think i decided not to pursue it because i was like meh I like to have an application that has as few polymorphic, like they're useful, but I like to have as few of them as possible. I like to work on, like the, the application that I was working on for this client before we rotated onto this new application, which I talked about a few episodes ago, originally started out with a whole bunch of polymorphic associations. And this seems like, it sounds like an anti-pattern, but I promise you in this particular use case, it was not. We ended up going to single table inheritance and it was so much nicer. <laughs> It was just so like, because the columns on those models were actually identical, ex save for like two columns. And I was like, I'm fine with the nulls in those columns. Like, let's just, <laughs> let's just have one table here. And then once we made that one change to those central models where we coalesced them all onto a single table and could get rid of all the polymorphic joins that were going out, that were elsewhere, it just had so like, you were able to clean up so much stuff, so much code. Yeah. So I think you can allow yourself like one or two polymorphic associations. Although now if you're going to start using active storage for things and every, and all of your associations are polymorphic, then I mean, all of your attachments are polymorphic, but maybe it's not great. I'm not sure. Anyway, yeah. just a quick heads up, everybody. Uh, next week, the bike shed will be taking its February vacation. We will be back with new episodes in two weeks. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 143. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore Bike Shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.